listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Thank you, Lane. Thank you all for being here today. We're in Luke chapter 11 this morning. Um, thankful for um, Mike Bailey filling in uh, a couple of Sundays ago and then Caleb Land filling in last Sunday, or not filling in, but preaching. Um, I had to be at a funeral last week. A lot of folks asked me, where were you? And uh, a friend of mine passed and they had the funeral last Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. So I was in Greenville, South Carolina. This morning, we're looking in Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse number 14. You know, we've gone through that section on prayer. And then one of my favorite verses, um, Luke 11, 13, um, about us praying for the Holy Spirit, right? To come and fill our lives as we know and understand from uh, Scripture. Um, the Father will give us His Holy Spirit. And then He goes right into this battle with Jesus and Satan. And so we get to, to, to look not only at the surface conflict, but we get to look at the behind the scenes conflict. And then Jesus begins to say some words that are uh, clearer and clearer. Not that he hasn't been clear, but he's drawing lines as he moves forward. And we'll look at this, this uh, what one writer called an axiomatic statement in verse number 23 that Jesus makes. But um, there's this war that's going on, and war is a way of life, and we understand that. There's war with our spouse. There's war with our children. There's war with our neighbors. There's war with our enemies. There's war on I-75 with road rage. If you've kept up with a number of people just in the metro Atlanta area that have been shot while driving through, it's like the Wild West all over again. There's, there's the rumbling of war with Russia and Ukraine. And war is all around us because, quite frankly, war is deep within our souls. War is inside of our hearts and in our minds. There are ways that we can see and read about it in history. And then there is history's greatest war. And history's greatest war started before history. It started in heaven when Lucifer declared war on God. And after Lucifer declared war on God and was cast out of heaven and God created Adam and Eve, Lucifer declares war on Adam and Eve. And literally in Genesis 3 in the fall, uh, they become captured or become slaves of Satan, Adam and Eve do. And then there is this war between Satan and humanity from then until now. And so Luke in this text invites us into the heart of this war and how in this war, humanity is ravaged. Humanity is invaded. And so Luke says, come and look at it firsthand because while there is a war, Jesus has Jesus Christ, through his death, brother, and resurrection, has set us free from that ancient foe who seeks to work his woe. And Jesus is setting people free. We can see in Luke chapter 4 and verse number 31 that he's casting out demons. We can see in Luke chapter 8 and verse number 
26, Jesus is casting out demons. We can see in Luke chapter 9 and verse number 1, he's sending out the 12 to go and proclaim the kingdom and cast out demons and heal the sick. We see, heal the sick. We see the 70 go out in Luke 10 and verse 17, and they return, and they were uh, amazed at the power through them as they proclaimed the kingdom, and they overthrew Satan's kingdom. So there is this war that is going on. And we come now to chapter 11 and verse number 14, and that war continues. And many of you in your lives are experiencing the effects, the damage of that war. And we're going to look at it this morning in the text of Scripture. Look at Luke 11, verse 14. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. I think that's just such a succinct way of, of saying that something amazing has happened. It's almost as though to Luke it is incidental, and no doubt the people that Jesus is going to be addressing, this was absolutely incidental to them. Verse 15, but some of them said, so, so let's make it clear, and the people marveled, but some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him. So there's one group of antagonists. There's another group of skeptics, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Do something sensational. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, I'm glad I don't know people's thoughts. <laughs> um, uh, if you ever call me and you don't hit the red button and hang up, I'm hanging up. I don't want to hear what you have to say. Um, I don't want you to be on the phone like, hey, bro, I love you. And then you don't press the red button and you're like, honey, I'm sorry. I had to talk to that guy. Okay. I don't want to hear that. I want to believe what you told me. And so I'm hitting the red button. If anybody ever um, accidentally dials me when their phone's in their back pocket, y'all know what that's called. I can't say it here. And I hear the conversation. I don't listen to it. I click it off. I don't want to hear your conversations, right? Jesus is hearing everything. He's not missing anything. He's knowing what they're thinking. He knows why they're thinking what they're thinking. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. Again, this, this universal statement, this universal principle that, that's irrefutable, uh, everybody knows this is true. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Zeelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by, by whom do your sons cast them out? He said, y'all aren't even being logical. You're not even following your own logic. Your logic doesn't work. Therefore, they will be your judges. Verse 20, but if it is by the finger of God, he's referring to Exodus chapter 8 and verse number 19, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Look at verses 21 and 22. Jesus now pulls back the curtain. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. That strong man is Satan. Look at verse 22. But when one stronger than he, the stronger man is Jesus, attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. And then the crux of the passage, the, the hinge that the passage swings on, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Verse 24, 
when the unclean spirit had gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And as he was saying these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you in the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. There are three main points. You'll see them on the screen. I'll share them with you and I will hasten through them this morning because there is so much here that I would like to share with you that is just leaping out of the text and bombarding my mind today. The first thing I want you to see is the incidental exorcism, the incidental exorcism. And I want to begin by saying that I believe it is, it is a fact. Demons are real. Demons are powerful. Demons are destructive. Demons are disruptive. Satan's kingdom is a kingdom of stealing, killing, and destroying. It's a kingdom of false religion, false prophets, mind control, manipulation, body control, addiction, possession, and deception. Demons are real. And they impact us and they influence us. And they are working constantly. Demons are real. This is not some old-timey passage that's giving, assigning some demonic force to some physical malady. Demons are real. Demons in this text had commandeered the life of this man and incapacitated his ability to speak. Don't, don't let this be lost on you. This human being was created in the image of God to use all of his faculties and abilities to bring praise and honor and glory to God. And part of this ability in the way that God created him was shut down by demonic forces. And the text says that he was mute. Apparently, his ability to speak and his ability to hear had been taken away from him. Whatever was, was required for him to make speech was dulled. That's what the word mute means, to dull the sound of, to silence. I, I want you to just kind of stop there for a minute. Have you ever had the opportunity to be around people who were hearing impaired or people, couldn't, who, people who couldn't speak? As, as a child, I, I grew up with family members who, um, who couldn't hear or speak. Those two things are connected. I went to a church that had sign language and tried to learn a little bit of it, very limited. And my wife knows more sign language than me, and I try to give her some signs every now and then, and she just looks at me like, uh, you know, uh, she doesn't understand me, so I'm not good at sign language. Went to a college that had a deaf college, so we were around uh, the hearing impaired all the time. And I have to be careful that whatever terms you use, you'll be canceled quickly if you say the wrong word. Um, and I have friends who um, had children that are hearing impaired and couldn't speak. And so um, I've, I've had a significant amount of exposure and if you have had that exposure, you realize that it's, it's a completely uh, different language. Sign language is a completely different language. We're spelling out English words, but it's a completely different language. It's a completely different way of relating. It's a completely different way of seeing the world, if you understand that. 
And, and so we're looking at this person that was not able to hear. Have you ever wondered what that would be like? Have you ever wondered what it would be like not to be able to hear music? I love music. Yesterday, I had Alexa turned wide open. I'm telling her, you know, play this, play this music for me, you know. And it plays and reverberates through the house, and I'm singing and enjoying my time because I have the ability to hear, and I have the ability. Have you ever thought about what it would be like not to hear a voice? Because just hearing a voice says so much. In hearing a voice, you can hear anger. In hearing a voice, you can hear ambivalence. In hearing a voice, you can hear coldness, or you can hear warmth, or you can hear love, or you can hear affection, not just in the, the words, but in the tone. Isn't it interesting that you can hear a voice, and if you haven't heard it for years, you hear it. One day I was at Starbucks, and I walked in, and I, I hear a voice. And I see this guy, and I'm like, I don't know who that guy is. The reason is, is because I haven't heard him speak for 25 years. And something in my brain immediately heard the sound of his voice. And then I, I began to, to pl plod through the file cabinets in my brain very slowly. And then I recognized that is, that is David Putman. I knew David Putman back in 1990. All because of my ability to hear and the distinctive qualities of a voice. Can you imagine how lonely this person must feel? How outside they must feel? How rejected? How misunderstood? How disconnected? Because a lot of times when we look at special needs people or we look at people that are hearing impaired, we automatically make some connection between that and diminished mental capacity and that is absolutely not the truth what you're looking at is people who have had to access a part of their brain that we will never touch i think this is important because we need to enter into what this person was experiencing but we also need to see in the text that there are these uh, these highly religious people that are so filled with anger and bitterness and contempt these holy people that are so offended and incensed by Jesus Christ and his apparent violation of their protocol that they don't even notice or care for someone who is broken and suffering and needs help. That's in this passage. How many times does our religion and our battles that we fight over who's right and who's wrong and who's holy and who's not cause us to forget that there are broken people in our midst they didn't even see it they didn't even see that someone who had spent their life mute was healed had been set free When I, when I went to y'all's house Friday night and I saw John and I said, I think God answered prayer. <laughs> and uh, we forget that, don't we? We just forget that. That just shoo, goes right over our head. We see God work. We see God heal, Right? We've had people that were in the hospital 
and didn't know if they were going to make it. And they come walking in today, and we've been praying, and here's a person that's been walking around their whole life, and, and they couldn't hear, and they couldn't speak, and everybody knew it. There is nobody here in this passage that doubted whether or not this was a, a legitimately mute person. That was not the issue. There's no doubt in this passage that Jesus legitimately healed someone that was legitimately mute. But it just completely was stepped right over by the holy, righteous, religious people. Don't miss that. Don't miss our propensity to miss what really matters. Don't miss our propensity to miss what we were really saved to do, what we're really supposed to see, how we're really supposed to connect. Because these highly religious people completely missed it. The text tells us, as we look at this incidental exorcism, that Jesus was casting out this demon. The word casting out is the root word is to throw, and there's a prefix before it, which means to throw out. Literally, Jesus was exercising his authority over the demonic realm in this text because he is God. He is the Son of God. And Jesus exercised his authority over the demonic realm, and he grabbed that demon by the nap of his neck, and he, he threw him out. He comes flying out. That's what Jesus did. He, he cast him out. And the demon goes out. And some people are amazed. So that's the incidental exorcism. But, but the second thing I want you to see in the text is the illogical accusation. Because once we get through, just, just Luke, just boom, 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 boom. There was a man who was mute. The man who was mute, the demon was cast out. When the demon was cast out, he could now speak. And after he speaks, everybody's amazed. Boom, 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 boom. There it is. Now let's move on, right? As soon as that happened, there is this, this, this illogical accusation. You can see it in verses 14 and, or 15 and 16. Um, they're making this accusation against Jesus. But before we look at those verses, here's, here's what I want you to think about. Why are they saying these outrageous things about Jesus? Why are they looking at the Son of God who just, who just and by the way, Nicodemus camp comes to Jesus in John 3 and says, nobody can do the things that you do except God. And now all of a sudden they're saying, you are doing the things that only God can do, but it isn't God, it's Satan. Why would they do that? I think it's critical that we understand why they are saying these outrageous things, why they are testing Jesus, why they are disparaging Jesus, why they are so hot under the collar and so angry and so filled with hatred. What was the problem with Jesus? And let me just say this, grab a hold of this. They were looking at Jesus through their presuppositional lens. There were some things that they presupposed about themselves. There were some things that they presupposed about their religion. And there were some things that they presupposed about Jesus. And they took those presuppositions, those things that they believed beforehand, put them on their face, and all they can look at and is what they see through their presuppositional lens. You say, what in the world do you mean by a presuppositional lens? It's the lens of their tradition. 
It's the lens of their great leaders. It's the lens of their religious system. It's the lens of their, even their interpretation of scripture. Jesus didn't come up through their ranks. He didn't graduate from their schools. He didn't study under their scholars. He didn't submit to them for approval. He didn't subscribe to their confessional statements. He didn't follow their rules. He didn't use their labels. They were looking at Jesus through their presuppositions suppositional lens. This is who we are. We are the ones that God is speaking to. We are the ones that God is working through. We are the ones that are a part of this organization. We're the ones that are a part of this denomination. And if God is going to do anything, he's going to be doing, doing it through us. And if anybody were to come along and say they were from God, but not a part of our organization, our institution, our organism, our denomination, our belief system, our traditions, and, and, and they don't fit our interpretations of scripture, then they can't be from God. Therefore, they must be of Satan. That's easy. They had their presuppositional lens that they viewed everything through. By the way, some of you are a step ahead of me. We all have presuppositional lens that we view the world through, that we view the Bible through, that we view other people through, that we view our religion through. We all have a presuppositional lens. But the question is this, do you look through your lens so that you can get it right? Or do you look through the lens that you look through so that you can know Jesus Christ? That's the question. And are you willing to question your presuppositional lens? You know, I, I grew up a Baptist and I'm always going to be a Baptist. I was Baptist born. I was Baptist bred. And when I die, I'm going to be Baptist dead. Well, hallelujah right? Are you willing to question your presuppositional lens? Could you be wrong? Could the things that you think you are so daggone right about be so daggone wrong? Could you be wrong? For most of us, our presuppositional lens is our theological system. Are you reformed? Right? Are you reformed? And then you got to say, well, just how reformed are you, bro? And maybe you're too reformed and maybe you're not reformed enough. And then what are we going to do? <laughs> right? By the way, that's a presuppositional lens. Are you Catholic? <laughs> well, on and on we could go with the questions. Are, are you Calvinist? Are you an Arminian like Jesus was? We use system words to identify ourselves and to unify us with people who have the same identity and to divide us away from people who don't subscribe to our system. Kind of like the Pharisees. Because after all, our system's got to be the right system. Here's why. Because it's my system. And then there's our organizational affiliation lens. Most of you don't know what any of these mean. Some of you do. 
you know, there's the A29 lens, there's the G3 lens, there's the T4G lens, there's the Nine Marks lens, there's the Shepherd's Conference lens, there's the John's 316 lens. I mean, we could go on with a list of lens that people look through, and then if you haven't been to that conference, and if you don't get those emails, then bless God, you just may not be in. Then there's our denominational affiliation lens. There's the SBC, the ABC, the NBC, the IFB, the FWB, the PCA, the PCUSA, the EPC, the AG, the COG, the COGIC, the AME, the UMC, and on and on we go. They're all presuppositional lens. And then there's our hermeneutical lens. I'm of the reformed hermeneutic. I'm of the historical, grammatical, literal hermeneutic and on and on we go my eschatology is my hermeneutic i'm premillennial i'm dispensational i'm i'm postmillennial i'm amillennial on and on we go with all of our uh, lens and i would just say this we all have them and i'm not saying any of those things that i said are bad but if 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 that's if that's the banner you stand under you're standing under the wrong banner the banner that we must stand under is Jesus Christ. And these people were standing under the banner of their religious organization and institution and tradition. And it put them in a place where they found themselves calling Jesus something that he wasn't, not because of who Jesus was, but because of who they thought they were. Beware of missing the authentic Jesus because you have a secondary presuppositional lens super glued to your face. Please understand as we begin to look at these folks that are saying these things about Jesus that we're talking about the holiest of the holy. There is not a person in this room and probably all of us collectively could not measure up to the holiness of these people according to Old Testament scripture. We're talking about the most religious of the religious. We're talking about the godliest of the godly. We're talking about the most scriptural of the scriptural. We're talking about the chosen people of God, the most historically connected to all of the biblical confessional statements and liturgy and powerful personalities. That's who we're talking about here. And they're coming at Jesus, and they completely miss Jesus because they presupposed some things about themselves that they had it figured out. That they were right. That they were the right ones. A friend of mine told me one day, he said, the folks at my church know more about what they're against than what they're for. And I would just say, beware of that. You better get a lens that helps you see Jesus the way Scripture identifies him for us. The text then shows us in verse 15 these antagonists. And they call Jesus the worst names they could come up with to call Jesus. They're calling the Son of God who came to dwell among them to reveal the Father to man, to look them in the eye with the love of the Father, with the grace of God, the one who had come, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. They're looking at him and calling him Beelzebul, the ruler of demons, the supreme demon, the prince of demons. It's not enough to say that Jesus had a demon. They, they had to take it as far as they could go. Jesus has got a super max, super demon. 
the vilest of the vile, the filthiest of the filthy, the dirtiest of the dirty demonic, dirtiest demonic forces. That's the moniker that they put on Jesus. They were saying that Jesus Christ was a tool of Satan. This was the worst name they could think of with which to associate Jesus. As bad and as low and as distasteful and as horrific and as disdainful. This is not the son of God, they were saying. This is the son of Satan. And the ones doing this were the holiest people on the block, the most knowledgeable, the most scriptural, the descendants of Abraham and David, the keepers of the law, the experts. They were saying that the most holy one is the most vile one. They were saying that the most pure one was, the mo was pure evil. They were saying that God was the devil. They were saying that perfect holiness was wickedness. They were saying that truth incarnate was a lie. They were saying that the sinless son of God is a servant of Satan. Verse 16, we see the skeptics, they wanted to test Jesus. The word test there is, uh, has a negative connotation. They, they wanted to try to catch Jesus in something. They said, Jesus, show us a sign. Show us something supernatural. Show us a, a, a miracle. J.C. Ryle said, it is always one mark of a thoroughly unbelieving heart to want more evidence of the truth of religion. The truth that God has given us more than, the truth is that God has given us more than enough evidence. What holds people back is the pride of their skepticism. So, so when somebody comes and says, I need more evidence, I need more evidence. There's, there's enough evidence when you look at the heavens declaring the glory of God. There's enough evidence when you try to go through and navigate your way through humanity and you see Satan with a death hold on our society. So we see the skeptics. They've come at Jesus with this illogical accusation. And then Jesus in verses 17 to 20 gives them an irrefutable explanation. And, and I break it down into four parts. This irrefutable explanation beginning in verse number 17. I'm going to read through Jesus' exp explanation. Notice what he says. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, well, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, and you are in a heap of trouble, boy. You're in a heap of trouble. There's this irrefutable ex explanation. Um, first of all, Jesus gives them this incontrovertible principle. Y'all are getting a lot of big words today. This incontrovertible principle. Um, you got a phone. You can look it up, okay? I'm trying to make it fit my outline. Um, Jesus, Jesus basically um, says this. Every kingdom, every nation, every family, every church, every organization, every organism, even the human body, if it is divided against itself, it will self-destruct from the inside out. That's just, that's, just a, that's just a principle that everybody knows. When a nation is at civil war, it will self-destruct. When a family is divided, when the parents can't get along, when the parents want to make their differences, what the family is about, and they want to fight it out, and their kids have to go to their room, but they can hear everything, and they, if they don't hear everything, and they, don't, they, they see the expressions on your face, and they feel the energy in the room, and they know that their house is disintegrating. House divided. 
People say, well, kids are resilient. No, they're not. No, they're not. They're, they're no more resilient than the front fender on your new car. And you take a sledgehammer to it, and it's going to have a dent there. And a suction cup ain't going to pull a dent out of somebody's heart. But, but we, we, when, when something is divided, that kingdom is going to fall. The, the scriptures are so clear on the unity of the church. Paul gives three chapters of doctrine in Ephesians, and he comes to chapter 4, and he says, okay, right out of the chute, how do we apply the doctrine that we've learned? Unity in the body. Because he knows that there are things that he wants to accomplish for his glory through his people. The church, there are things that he wants the church to be. And the number one destructor, destroyer of what God wants through his church is disunity. It's disunity. It's not easy. Unity is not easy. Unity is fragile. Even the human body, that principle... What is cancer? It's the, uh, it's the, it's the body attacking itself. It's, there's cells in the body that have gone rogue. They're not cooperating with the rest of the body. What is, what is an autoimmune deficiency? It's a, it's a function of the body that's designed to protect that's now gone on the offensive instead of the defensive that's tearing down your, your body from the inside out. Viruses and germs, bacteria. So we, we know that there is this incontrovertible principle that when there is a kingdom that is divided against itself, it is divided into parts, it is fragmented, that, that it will be laid waste, it will be brought to desolation, it will be left useless and it will fall. And literally he's saying it will fall prostrate. Prost, prostrate, yeah. You got to get those words right. That's not what you go to the doctor and have checked. That's falling flat on your face. Look up the word. People use that word all the time. Somebody's going to be like, preacher, you shouldn't have said that in church. We sing it. Let angels prostrate fall. It means falling flat. Okay. The, 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 the house that is divided against itself will just fall flat. I would prefer to take the 15 seconds it takes to read our mission statement every week and use that time for preaching. But you know what? We just want to remind you we exist to equip the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus so that you'll know that's what we're about. And hopefully if you came here, that's what you're about. So that we can be unified. So that we won't be divided. And if that's not what you want to be about, don't stop us from doing it, please. So it's not just a little pithy thing. Hey, all the cool churches are saying their mission statement. No, we want to remind you every week that this is what we're about. Because we want to be unified. We want to be on mission for God and his kingdom. So there is this incontrovertible principle that a kingdom that is undermining itself will not be sustainable. But secondly, he, 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 give, he makes this illogical proposition to argue that Satan would empower Jesus to cast out demons on an unprecedented scale and thereby destroy his own kingdom is ridiculous. What we know is Jesus is casting out demons like crazy. Everywhere he goes, he's casting out demons. But all of a sudden, they're trying to say, yeah, that's not God. That's not the force of God. That is Satan that's casting out demons. So Satan has worked hard to infiltrate, to fill, to destroy, to kill, to maim, to leave a bunch of people walking around, limping around spiritually 
and physically. And now all of a sudden, Satan is going to move in and he's got this guy that's moving in. And by satanic power, he's undoing what he's already done. That's, that's, that's ridiculous. That's illogical. Satan's goal is to destroy God's kingdom. And Satan and everybody in Satan's kingdom are completely unified around that objective. And then they find themselves in this inescapable conundrum. Jesus asked this question. He said, who, if, if I am casting out demons by the power of Satan... And yet, you guys in your organization have exorcists that cast out demons, then can you take your logic that you're applying to me and apply your logic to you? Because your logic is completely illogical. And so now they are, they are in this inescapable conundrum. If you're going to assign this ridiculous assertion to Jesus, then you must assign it to your own exorcist if you're going to be logically consistent. And if you do that, you have to, like many of us, conclude that Satan is more powerful than God. And he's not. And then finally, verse 20, there is this, this irrefutable conclusion Look at verse 20 again. He says, but, yeah, but, 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 if it is by the finger of God, Exodus 8, 19, the third plague, the gnats. Plague one, the pagan magicians duplicated it. Plague two, the pagan magicians duplicated it. Plague three, the pagan magicians did all that they could with all of their incantations and their magic and their science and whatever they were using. And they went to Pharaoh and they said, Pharaoh, the pagan magicians, the pagan magicians. Did you get that? The pagan magicians, not Israel, not Judaism. The pagan magicians knew when they were up against the finger of God, the spirit of God, the power of God, the hand of God. They knew that. They knew that. So there's this irrefutable conclusion. The pagans were able to see very clearly what the ultra-religious leaders were blinded to. This is the supernatural power of God. And if that's the case, this is not Satan's kingdom. This is indeed the kingdom of God standing right before you in front of your eyes. What a tragedy it is for God to be working, but people completely miss the finger of God because of their pride or their anger or their thought that God can only work through their system their belief system, their organization, their organism, their cult. They couldn't see the finger of God because it didn't fit their presuppositional lens. Beware of looking at something or someone and because it doesn't fit your man-made grid or because you can't explain it, you just simply explain it away. I want to tell you something. This may come as a shock to you, but I don't know everything. And this may even be a greater shock to you. Neither do you. Neither do you. So beware. 
beware of looking at something and saying, oh, ha, ha, ha. you got to put that in front of it. Because when you do the, oh, 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 that means you really mean it. That means you're really on to something, right? Oh, 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 this is of Satan. God might be doing something right in front of your eyes, and you're going to miss it. I want to move from those three things that we see in the text to an illustration that Jesus gives. And it's a powerful illustration. It's one that should encourage every one of us in this room. It should want, it's, it's an illustration that should want anybody who doesn't believe the gospel. It should, it should move at least in your mind logically. And hopefully the spirit will move in your heart spiritually to bring you to a place of saying, man, I, I want to be, be on the side of the stronger man. I want to be on the side of the stronger man. And so Jesus gives this illustration. He's, he's looking at this text and all of this war and this battle that's going on, that's been going on, this real man this, that was mute, these real religious leaders that are coming to Jesus and challenging him and calling him Satan, and Jesus laying out this, this, this clear uh, refutation of their foolish assertions about him. And he gives us this beautiful, this beautiful illustration Two verses, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. The strong man is Satan. Satan. Satan has high walls. He's got plenty of weapons. We know that from Ephesians 6. He's well fortified with weaponry, and he's coming after us, and he's serious, and he's, he, he's able to just go right into our heart with this weaponry, and he's able to captivate and capture our mind, and he's able to tempt us, and he's able to get us off track. He's able to trip us up. He's got all of these schemes. He's got guards. He's well fortified. What are his goods? His goods are people. It's always people. It's not gold and frankincense and myrrh, and it's not a car collection. He doesn't have a classic car collection. He doesn't have a house on the beach and a house in the mountains and a house in Colorado, and he doesn't have a gun collection. He doesn't have curio cabinets. Uh, what Satan has collected in his kingdom are people. People. Lives. Human beings. There is this strong man, and this strong man has dominion over sinners. They are Satan's property. They are his goods and he's got them behind lock and key. And there is no way they can get out. And there is no way that anybody can get in. Let me just stop for a second. People look around at what's happening in our world today. And they say, um, if God was good, they blame God. Let me, let, me just, let me just stop for a minute and just, just you got to understand the devil is real. Let me just tell you that God is unimaginably good. If you are questioning the goodness of God, you have fallen into a deep trap. And it stinks really bad. And you're in a mess. God is unimaginably good, and Satan is unimaginably evil. Don't miss that. 
If you believe that God is not good, Satan has warped your... Uh, I request permission to be hostile. <laughs> if you are sitting here today saying, if God were only good, bad things wouldn't happen, I want to tell you that Satan has warped your puny mind. You have watched a 45-second TikTok video on your phone, and you think you have destroyed the foundation of all of Scripture, all 66 books, and you think that you have destroyed the foundation of 5,000 years of human history and the indescribable evil that gushes out in the street before us that is undeniable, and you have concluded that the problem is God. Essentially, what you've done is what the Pharisees had done. You have concluded that the solution is the problem. Do you understand that? Parents, your kids have phones and they're watching, they're watching junk that is, that is designed specifically to undermine everything we're trying to teach them here and everything that you may or not be trying to instill in them in the home. And it is so convincing. It is so convincing. We have concluded that the solution is the problem. Jesus is the solution. Satan is the problem. Sin is the problem. You're drinking the strong man's Kool-Aid and he's got a firm grip on your medulla oblongata. There's the strong man. Folks, he's real. Somebody asked me this week, they said, do you think the culture has changed? Do you? Because I get made fun of. I'm like, well, back in the 80s, back in the 80s, it was good. Pat, it was good back in the 80s, brother. Amen. First time Pat said amen in months. So. <laughs> amen. That was just the truth. That's a true statement. Amen, amen. And so I'll start to say something. They'll be like, oh, back in the 80s, back in the 80s, it was probably just as bad. No, it's worse today than it's ever been. The enemy has pulled off his mask. He is showing his fangs. We can see his claws. He's, he's going through and he's leaving damage. He's destroying. He's killing. And he's leaving people maimed and ruined. And we can see it before our very eyes. And we can run. And we can build walls. And we can go. I told somebody this week, I said, you could go to a desert island. And the prince of the power of the air, how he has been unleashed in the world that we live in right now, he would find you there. He's a strong man. He's a strong man, but thank God, I know a stronger man. Amen. And the text tells us that in verse number 22, Jesus Christ is the stronger man. Listen, listen to what, listen to what Ephesians says in Ephesians chapter four, as, as Paul in Ephesians four is quoting, um, the, the 68 Psalm, um, and, and verse number 18, and I'm going to turn him up. I'm just going to flip through some scriptures here for just a second. If you'll indulge me. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and he's quoting Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He set men free through his death and his burial and his resurrection. 
Luke chapter 4 tells us just clearly why Jesus came. If, if, if you don't, just don't, don't miss what Luke chapter 4 verses 18 and 19 tells us about Jesus Christ. It says, here's what Jesus said. The spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus Christ is the stronger man. He has come to set us free. Colossians chapter 1. Back, uh, Colossians chapter 1. Listen, listen to what Paul says to the church at Colossae as he, as he writes to them. It says, He has delivered us from the dominion, from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Again, the same thing. It says, um, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus came and all of God's wrath was poured out on him for our sin. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Jesus bore our wrath. Jesus rose victorious over sin. Sin has been defeated and we no longer have to be in Satan's prison anymore. If we will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be saved. I love Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 14. Let's listen to what God's word says about the work of Christ. Hebrews 2 14. <clears throat> it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. If you are not in Christ, you are subject to lifelong slavery. You will die without Christ. You will spend eternity in hell separated from God. But Christ came and has defeated the enemy, and he can no longer keep you in his prison. 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 8. Listen, listen to what John says uh, along the same lines. 1 John 3, 8. It says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. There is a strong man, but I know a stronger man. And let me just assure you this morning, there is no deliverance from captivity for anyone, for, for anyone anywhere apart from Jesus Christ. You are in captivity to Satan right now, this morning, if you are not in Jesus Christ. So we see the illustration. And then Jesus, I believe, goes right into application, verses 23 to 28. And I want to just point out three things. And verse 23 is just kind of the center of the whole text as far as I'm concerned. The first thing we see by way of application, if you will, go back to Luke chapter um, Luke chapter 11, <clears throat> verse 23. L listen to this. This is how it works. What are we going to do? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live? What, what, what changes do I need to make? 
Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Let's, let's, try, to, let's try to break that down for, for just a second, okay? The whole concept of gather, gathering and scattering. And here, here's, the, here's the principle in application. There is no middle ground with Jesus Christ. Jesus is kind of laying it out, and, it's, and, it's, and it's, it's black and white. It's hot or cold. Uh, there's no lukewarm here. He, he said, he that is not with me is against me. He that gathers not with me scatters the way I memorized it, scatters abroad. If you're not with him, you're against him. There is no middle ground. This is the conclusion, the clear and present and unflinching, unbending conclusion. There is no wiggle room. Either you are with Jesus Christ, you are living in compliance with him. There is active, practical agreement with Jesus Christ. Either you are with him and that's not a doctrinal statement on paper. I'm not opposed to doctrinal. I'm, I, I believe everything here, every bit of it. I believe every bit of it. And everything in this book points to someone that we are supposed to be with in relationship. You can have every word in this book memorized. And if you are not with Jesus in relationship, then you are lost. He that is not with me, if you are not with Christ in relationship, which is going to translate into a life that is lived out practically with him. He that is not with me is against me, in opposition to me. There is no neutral ground. There is no place for postmodern thinking here because a postmodernist would say, well, you can be with him and you can be against him. It just depends on how you feel when you wake up in the morning. There is a way to do both. There is a way to figure it out. No, there's not. But then, he, then he, he's taking us now to what he's been talking about all along. He's been talking about a harvest. He's been talking about what is the harvest? It's not barley. It's not wheat. It's not corn. It's not tobacco. I used to work in the tobacco fields or, or baca. They didn't put the toe on the front of it. Well, what is he talking about? What is the harvest? Why did he say in, in Luke 9, you know, or Luke 10, go, go into the harvest. The, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send people into his harvest. The harvest is people. The harvest is relational. So he's using this harvesting terminology, this, this, this concept of gathering. Let me, just, let me just read a few verses in Scripture that I think unveil for us the concept of gathering. I've uh, had opportunity to listen to somebody um, via audio, um, via audible, talk about Psalm 27 recently and um, it, it has gripped my heart, and I'm thankful for it. But in Psalm 27, 10, it says, um, For my father and my mother have forsaken me. Now, that's my father and mother didn't forsake me, uh, so don't read anything into that. But here's what he said, But the Lord will take me in. That's what it means to gather. It means to be taken in by Christ. It means to be taken into fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That's what it means to gather. We see it in Luke 10, 
We see it in Luke chapter 13. I, I, I love Luke chapter 13 and verse number 34, and the same thing is in Matthew 20, 23. Um, let me find my place. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. It's this gathering together for protection. It's this gathering together in relationship. It's gathering together in love. It's gathering together in fellowship. Uh, Matthew 25 is rather explicit uh, if, if you want to try to understand the concept of gathering. Um, there is at the end of the ages, apparently, um, this final judgment. When the Son of Man comes... In his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was a stranger and the word there is you gathered me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And, and when did you see a stranger and, and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did you see a sick person or in prison or visit you? And the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That's the concept of gathering. So there is this, this gathering. Gathering is relational. You cannot be a gatherer with Jesus if you don't like people. You cannot be a gatherer with Jesus if you are a non-relational person. To gather means to collect, these are definitions, to lead, to bring together, to, to lay together in closeness, in intimacy, to be in close community and to invite others into that closeness. This is what he's saying. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said, I'm going to gather you to myself and I want you to go out into this wasteland where Satan is holding people captive and I want you to proclaim good news and I want you to take these people and I want you to gather them and bring them into the fellowship of the Trinity. I want you to bring them into fellowship with me. I want you to bring them into relationship with me. It is a gathered people who are close and vulnerable and inviting, compelling precious souls enslaved to Satan to see the finished work of Jesus Christ and to believe in him and to be gathered to him and to be gathered to the Trinity and to be gathered into the family and then to be sent out to gather others. Jesus is essentially saying, if you are not gathering, then you don't belong to me. If you have not been gathered and you are not gathering, then you don't belong to me. If you don't understand what it means to be, if you're not just in awe, if, if you can't look at a, at a person who can't speak or hear and see the power of God radically transform them and you say, wow, what a great God, I've got to go tell somebody. But all you want to do is you want to scatter like the Pharisees were doing. So gathering is us being gathered to him 
in love, in fellowship, in relationship, and us out of just being in fellowship with him and being amazed, going and proclaiming good news to others and gathering them as well. He that gathers not with me scatters abroad. He's using uh, uh, shepherding terminology. He's using agricultural terminology in the gathering. He's using shepherding terminology in the, in the, the scattering, the scattering of the, the sheep. In, in John chapter 10 and, and verse number 12, you know John 10, 10, I've, uh, I've come that you, the, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more uh, uh, abundantly. But verse 12 says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. That's a scatterer. A scatterer is not someone that knows Christ. you are for him and with him, you will join him and those that he has gathered in his great work of gathering souls to God. But if you are against him, you will only drive people away. You will only divide people. You will only scatter people to Satan. The harvest is immense. It is his harvest. He has sent us into his harvest and he has called us to gather the harvest and pray for others to come and gather the harvest with us so that we can be gathered to him. We should know the joy of being gathered and we should know the joy of gathering others. And I, I may be out on a legalistic limb here, but if we're in the harvest and we're gathering and we see the immensity of the harvest. And man, we see people that are just imprisoned by Satan. Right? You look, at, you look at families that are just being destroyed and being wrecked by Satan. You look at individuals that are being lied to and wrecked by Satan. Can, can you just look at that? Can you just look at that and say, oh, well, you know, hit the button. The gate, drive through, hit the button. I'm okay. I ain't worried about them. You see, there should, we should be experiencing the joy of being gathered to Christ. We should be experiencing going out and relating to others and seeing them in their muteness, in their inability to praise Him, in their inability to speak, in their inability to communicate, in their isolation, in their loneliness, in their rejection. We should be able to gather these people and bring them in, but at the same time, we should feel such pressure from the immensity of the harvest that we would then not say, I want to do more, but I need more help because I'm doing all I can. So therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers into his harvest. Why? So that we can gather. Because he that, is, he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. And if you're going home and opening the gate and closing the gate and you're living in some sterile environment, completely out of touch with the harvest that you're supposed to be in the middle of that Jesus said is his harvest that he sent you into, then something is really, really wrong. If you're in the kingdom, you're in the harvest. The second point of application 
First point is there is no middle ground. The second point is this, the danger of moral reform, reformation without heart transformation. Now, I, I, want, I want you to go back to uh, verse 13 where he talks about the spirit and, and then look at verse 24, because I think Jesus is going back and giving, giving us a, an encapsulation of what's just happened in this text. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, dry, uh, dry, arid places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Why is the house swept and put in order? Why does this, why does this uh, demon have the opportunity to go back into this place of dwelling? Because the spirit isn't there. All this person did was said, I'm doing some really bad stuff. I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to stop smoking. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to stop chewing. I'm going to stop running with wild women. I'm going to stop driving fast cars. I'm just going to clean up my act. I'm even going to start giving to the church. There's this, this moral reformation. The demon comes back. You know what I think in looking at the context of this passage? You know what I think the, 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 the demon, the seven demons that came back were? I think it was this religious crowd. I think it was this religious crowd. I don't think it was the drinkers and the cussers and the, and the rebel rousers and the fornicators. That's, 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 that's one level of sin. I think if you want to take sin to a whole new level, you go drag in the religious element to it. If you want to take demonic activity to a whole new level, you think Satan's out there worried about what's going on in the, in the bar? You think anybody in the bar is a threat to him? No. But a lot of times we experience this moral revolution and we stop doing all this bad stuff. We don't have any clues to who the Holy Spirit is. And all of a sudden now we get religion. Praise God. And he's saying, hey, let me tell you something. You cleaned up your act, but the Spirit wasn't there. And now what's going on in your life is this cold, dead religion. There is this moral reformation without heart transformation. You have whitewashed the tomb. You have pressure washed the grave site. You have pressure washed the, the, the headstone. But the tomb is still full of dead men's bones inside. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees, we clean up on the outside without the power and presence of the Holy Spirit on the inside. And when we do that, something worse will come in. This text, we see a demon-possessed person who is healed and Satan has been cast out. But in the end, we see something that is worse than having a demon that makes us mute. is having seven demons that make us morally reformed externally and spiritually dead. It's easier to deal with demon possession than it is to deal with religious moralism. It's easier to deal with demon possession. In fact, I would say that religious moralism is a high-class form of demon possession. And somebody's going to say, well, you just want us to be immoral. No, I don't want us to be immoral. I want us to look at the third principle, and it's this. Heart transformation leads to loving obedience. That's what verses 27 and 28 is about. Heart transformation leads to loving obedience. These folks, listen, let me tell you, these Pharisees were religious people. They, they, they did everything right. They had their Bibles. But they were worse off than the man who had the mute demon in him. 
Here's, here's the key. Somebody cries out, you know, blessed is your mother. That is, that is a way of complimenting an individual to say, your mom must really be proud of you. You are an amazing person. Your mom must be an amazing woman, and she must really, blessed be the woman who bore a child like you. Jesus comes back saying essentially the same thing he said in Luke chapter 8 and verse 21. He said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed rather are those who have the spirit in them and the word of God has a place to sink deeply into their heart and into their soul. And then it flows out of them in loving obedience. It flows out of them in the power of the spirit. First John chapter 3 sums it up for us. And, and I'll read this and we'll, we'll have communion this morning. First John chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Listen, listen, to, what, listen to what John is, is trying to, to tell us about, about obedience. And, and, and if you're concerned about moralism or my lack thereof, this, this sums it up. He says, and this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit in whom he has given us. What is he saying? There was, this, there was this man who cleaned his act up, but the spirit wasn't there. It was dry. The demons come and they fill him. And this man becomes some, some morally religious zealot with a cleaned up outside and a, a, a hard, mean, hateful exterior that would lead him to look at the Son of God and say that he is Beelzebul. But he's saying, no, it's not about moral reformation without heart transformation. It's about heart transformation that falls in love with Jesus Christ and then manifests itself in our love one for another. And that is how we live. Do we live in obedience? Absolutely. But it's not an obedience that's, that's, that flows out of our self-righteousness. It's an obedience that flows out of a heart that's been transformed by the power of the Spirit of the real Jesus who casts out demons. So we see the application. Listen, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ, Jesus said, either you're with me or you're against me. He that is not with me is against me. He that gathers not with me scatters abroad. I invite you to come to him today. I invite you to join us as we gather. I invite you to gather with us. <laughs> Be a gatherer. Gather with us.